You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Matthew chapter 6, let's pick it up in verse 9. We're going to read through this. And then we'll take one part of it and take a look at it. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the beauty of your word. And Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that we've experienced in you. For those, Father, in this room and those that are watching who've moved from darkness into light, who've been made alive by your power and the good news of the gospel, Father, we have been forgiven much. And Father, we are deeply grateful for your grace and your mercy and that forgiveness which we didn't deserve and that we could have never worked out on our own. Father, I pray that you would teach us to pray just as you were teaching the disciples to pray. I pray, Father, that in our prayers we would honor your name always. That, Father, you are worthy to be exalted, to be worshiped, to be honored. There is none like you. And Father, we pray that that your kingdom would come and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, Father, our wills this morning and this time that we have together, that our will be surrendered, submitted to yours. That you would have your will in a way, that you would have your purposes accomplished here this morning in the hearts of your people. And, Father, we ask for your daily provision. Father, you have provided for us all week, and we are grateful for that. And, and Father, you're a father that gives good things to your children. And so, Father, we seek your face for those deepest desires in our hearts. And, Lord, you know them all too well. Father, we also ask for your forgiveness. There are things we've gotten wrong this week. There's thoughts that we've had, words that we've said, actions that we've done that were not pleasing in your sight, and we ask for your forgiveness and that you would clean us up this morning. Prepare us, Father, for the cup and the bread that we're going to take part in in just a few moments. Father, I pray that we would begin preparing our hearts even now for that moment. Father, I pray that you would help us to not yield to temptations when they come, and that you would deliver us from the power of the evil one. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to pray, to seek your face, to seek, ask, and knock, and we ask you, Father, that as we move through your word this morning, that you would grab our hearts and grab our attention. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, um, but it's happened to me before. Someone wrongs you, someone does something wrong to you, hurts your feelings, says something that just really, really breaks your heart, breaks your spirit. And then this person, in trying to make things right, makes an apology. And sometimes it doesn't happen in the moment, you don't catch it in the moment, but then maybe a day later, a week later, you, you start thinking about that apology, you come to the realization that, it was actually not an apology at all. As a matter of fact, the person who apologized really didn't apologize. They really never took ownership of what they did wrong. 
They, they never took ownership and admitted the fact that they did something wrong to you. And in fact, as you contemplate on the apology moment, you realize that the person never took responsibility for anything that they'd done. Maybe you've got someone in your life who's a professional at this. I didn't know this until I started studying a little bit this week, and I didn't know there was such a thing as a faux-pology. You know what a faux-pology is? Well, faux being fake. Apology, well, basically a misuse of the English language, but nonetheless, a faux-pology. A non-apology. This is when the offender apologized, but not really. And I found out that there's some sentences, and when I begin to think about this, I'm like, yeah, that makes perfectly good sense. There's some words that, that often are accompanying a non-apology. See if you can pick up on a few of these. There's three of them in particular that I want you to think about. The person, when they apologize, they say this, I I'm sorry you feel that way. So they've wronged you, right? They they've done something to hurt your feelings, did something against you. But, but when they apologize, they say something like this, well, I I'm sorry that you feel like you were hurt. So what that actually does, instead of them taking responsibility, uh, basically it puts the blame back on you, that you shouldn't be feeling that way, so therefore they're sorry that you feel that way. Well, that's a classic non-apology. Another one, well, I, I'm sorry, but, <laughs> I'm sorry, but, but you know I'm right. Uh, I'm sorry, but you know I had to do this. I'm sorry, but you needed to hear that. That's also making excuses and trying to justify their actions. Or here's this one. I'm sorry, but I was just trying to help. Well, you didn't. But they never come to that place where they actually take ownership of what they did. All of these are half-hearted attempts. And there's a reason why we're all guilty of saying those kinds of things. And we've all received those kinds of things is because we struggle with the concept of offering forgiveness. We, we struggle with the concept of taking ownership of what we've gotten wrong. We struggle with the idea that, that we've actually wronged another person. So in that moment of trying to make things right and trying to apologize, we'll take this side path of either self-justification or blaming the other person. Jesus, of course, being God in the flesh, He's teaching this model prayer. And in Luke's account, it's a response to the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus teaches how to pray. And in this model prayer, he's talked about the elements of what prayer life looks like. Worship, forgiveness, well, our needs, being delivered from temptation. But then Jesus breaks out of this model prayer, and it's, it's rather kind of a stark contrast in verse 14. In verse 14, he's no longer following this model prayer, and it's as though Jesus wants to emphasize something that he's already said in the model prayer. If you back up into verse 12, he says, and forgive us our debts as we have also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. A few weeks ago when we were in Psalm 51 talking about forgiveness, I never talked about forgiving others. We only focused on David's sin with Bathsheba and what that meant, and he writes that Psalm 51 in response as a petition to God to forgive his sins. We never really talked about the second half of that. The reason I didn't is because I knew verse 14 was going to come up. So Jesus steps out of the model prayer, and he goes back and he reemphasizes this forgiving others. And I believe the reason Jesus does this, and he doesn't just do it here, he's going to talk about it again as he walks with the disciples because Jesus knows that we wrestle with this. 
I want to say on the very front end this morning that I'm not in any way going to discount the way you've been hurt. Just had someone after the first service come up to me and express a struggle with forgiving. And I could see it in his face, the pain that this other person, he didn't tell me the story, I don't know the story. I didn't need to see it. I didn't need to know the story because in his eyes, I saw the hurt and the pain. And when I look at your eyes, I know that you've had some significant pain in your background. And I want you to understand that that while everyone in this room has been hurting a thousand different ways down through your life, I'm not discounting that, but here's what we are talking about. If you're a disciple of Jesus, we're going to have to come to the place of forgiveness with that person that wronged us. And I'm going to back that up today with a parable that Jesus told the disciples. Because I think the reason that Jesus pulls this aspect out, and I mean, look, think about it. In verse 14, he could have said, hey, guys, now remember, when you're worshiping God, make sure you honor his name. He could have said there, he could have went back up and said, okay, guys, remember, it's not about your will, but it's about God's will. But at the end of this prayer, to kind of reinforce, what, what part does he choose to reinforce? Forgiving others. And he says here, if, if we're not willing to forgive someone else, then what we are doing, we are blocking the work of God's grace in our life and his forgiveness towards us. Humans can inflict great harm Ever since the fall, all through the Bible and all through your life and all through our existence, because people are born into sin, we were all born as sinners, we have the capacity to do great evil, great harm to one another. When we come from death into life, when we surrender our life to Christ, we still have the potential to really get some things wrong, to hurt people, to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, out of selfish ambition. Jesus is going to teach the disciples, not only here, but there is a connection between God's grace in our life and what God has forgiven us and the ministry that we have with others in forgiveness. And instead of going to a psalm today, we had planned to go to Psalm 32, but the Lord said, you're not going to Psalm 32 today, you're going to go to a parable. And I think it's in that parable that Jesus is going to help the disciples begin to get their arms around what it means to forgive others. Because at this very moment and as time moves on, there is... There is tension growing within the lives of the disciples. They're all wrestling with who's going to be number one. Peter, the outspoken one, he's almost in his mind thinking that he's going to be the guy. James and John are wrestling with the idea that Peter's kind of stepped into that role. And James and John's mother even steps into the equation and says to Jesus, hey, uh, have you noticed my two sons here? And can they have a nice position of influence? There is tension among these disciples. And the opportunity, the ability to forgive other people goes right to the core of the Great Commission. These men, without Judas, once the Holy Spirit comes, fills them up, lives inside of them, and they're sent out, they're going to be hurt. They're going to be yelled at. They're going to be cursed. They're going to be thrown in jail. If these men can't forgive, then there's no way that the gospel will ever leave Jerusalem. I think we need to be reminded. I think we need to have a reminder on a regular basis on just how much God has forgiven us because that's going to translate in how we forgive others when we see the parable in just a moment. We have an ordinance within the church Something that the Bible says that the body is to do on a regular basis 
to remind us of the great sacrifice, and out of that great sacrifice, the great need that that sacrifice met. It's called communion. It's called the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup. And we want to do that right now this morning because I think what this will do is it will help us consider the grace and the mercy that we've received and the calling to give that mercy and grace out to someone else. So let me just give a few things out here to kind of set the stage. First of all, if you are a baptized believer of Jesus and you're a member of this church, we want you to participate. If you're here and you're a guest this morning and you are a baptized believer and you're part of a church that believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of God's word, the authority of God's word, and you're a Christ follower and you've been baptized, we want to invite you to be part of this body and participate. But I also want you to consider where your heart is right now. Before we take the cup and the bread, we just want to pray together. Father, right now, there's anything in our heart that would uh, prevent us from partaking of this, I pray, Father, that we would just let it pass today. Because the last thing we want to do is take something, take this bread and this cup in a way that is not pleasing to you. So, Father, I pray for every person in this room that as we worship you and honor you in this moment, that we would worship you and honor you by taking of this cup, taking of this bread in a fashion that honors you and glorifies you. So, Father, I pray that we would examine our hearts even in this moment. We thank you for the opportunity to do what the church has been doing for thousands of years all over the world. And that's remembering, remembering, Lord, what you did for us on that day and what you've been doing for us over and over and over again. Thank you for all that you've done. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, if you didn't get one of these, this uh, little combo cup here, just raise your hand. They'll be glad to bring one. I've got a couple of deacons in the back. If you want to participate, you didn't get one, stick those hands up. It's no problem. Nothing to be embarrassed about. Just stick your hand up, and they'll bring it right to you. Anybody at all that missed that wants to participate. Now, on top of this thing, you've got a little tab you can pull back there. I know this is different than the way we used to do it, but with COVID, this is probably the safest way we can do it right now. So we want to make sure that we, we honor God and, and do what we've been called to do as a church. So when we come to the bread and the cup, it forces us to pause in this busy life that we're in and all the distractions and consider what Jesus did. And consider that before the foundation of the world, that that Jesus Christ was set apart for this very task. And that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, lived among us a perfect life, And then there comes a time in the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be confronted with not only one of his own, Judas, who betrays him, but he's going to be confronted with the Roman authorities. That was no surprise to Jesus at all. No surprise that the Jewish rulers are there. No surprise that the Romans are there. No surprise that he's going to be arrested because this is exactly why he came. Three and a half years of ministry with with his disciples has led to this moment in time. And even at the very beginning, the beatings begin. People taking cheap shots at him while they're carrying him off to Annas and Caiaphas for these trials they're going to put him on, which were absolutely illegal in and of themselves. And all along the journey, he's being beaten, yelled at, cursed. The Bible says that that he was beaten 
and lived for our transgressions, for our sins. It says that he was whipped for our transgressions. It says that he was bruised for our iniquities and that he gave up his freedom. He gave up his freedom and and laid down his life so that we could find freedom. So that we wouldn't have to be separated from God and for all eternity in a place called hell of torment. That we, that we could be reconciled and made right with God. But it required a body that would be punished and bruised and beaten on our behalf. His body was freely given so that we could be free. And this, this wafer that we've got this morning, this wafer represents that body that was broken. That body that was given so that we could find reconciliation with our God. Father, we put all the distractions aside this morning. Lord, your body was bruised and beaten to give us life. So Lord, we pause this morning and we say thank you. We pause this morning and we remember. And Lord, as we we take of this bread this morning together, We are a church family because of what you did. We are are adopted as sons and daughters because of what you did. And Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Jesus was in the upper room. And he would wash the feet of the disciples and he would say to the disciples, now this is an example of what I want you to do. I want you to love people this this way, that you would be willing to serve them even as a bondservant. The Greek word being doulos, a slave. Also in that upper room, they would come together and he he would break the bread signifying his body. Then he would take the cup and he would say, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood that I'm giving to you. And this new covenant. And the disciples didn't understand what was going on in that moment. They had no idea exactly what Jesus was talking about. This was the Passover. They were, they were remembering Exodus 12 when the Israelite people came out of bondage and they were to kill a, a lamb and put his blood above the door so that the death angel would pass by. And then here's Jesus talking about, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood that will be shed for you. And in that moment in the upper room, they had no idea. But man, 24 hours later, less than 24 hours later, they knew exactly what he was talking about. The Bible talks about over and over again how the blood has a cleansing effect, a forgiving effect, that the grace of God poured out and freely offered to those who would put their faith in Jesus and have their lives changed. The blood giving us the opportunity to be reconciled with our Creator. And the cup represents... Not only the perfect, pure blood of Jesus who had no sin or no unforgiveness in his life, no sin in his life. As a matter of fact, while they're nailing him to the cross, Jesus is calling out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The world has not seen love like that. The world had never seen grace like that. The world had never seen anyone like Jesus. There's never been anyone since, and there will never be one, another one like Jesus. And one day he will come in all power and authority, but between now and then, we are to remember what he did to bring us into our right relationship with God. Father, we pause and we say thank you for the shed blood. We thank you 
for the fact that we can gather as a church body today and remember what brought us here, what brought us to this place of being in the body. It was not our good works. It was not our good deeds. It was not the fact that we were church members. Lord, it was by your blood that you shed that made us clean, white as snow, adopted as your sons and daughters. And Father, we're grateful for that. Jesus, we're grateful for what you did. And we remember. We ask this in his name. Amen. Let's take this together in remembrance of him. Let's turn to Matthew 18. So Jesus gives a parable. And these parables that we read in the Gospels has as their purpose to tell us what the kingdom is like. And oftentimes in these parables, Jesus will say that very phrase, the kingdom is like. Now what prompts this conversation or this parable is verse 21. So Matthew 18, verse 21. Now the context of what's happening in chapter 18, the disciples are still fussing and arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus is fully aware of that. And, and this tension is growing and Peter comes to Jesus after hearing Jesus talk about the church, the, 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 the body of Christ. He talks about this in 18, that, that when a brother or sister wrongs you, how are you supposed to, to make that right? And so Jesus talks about that. So that puts a question in Peter's mind. And the question comes in verse 21. Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Well, that's a legitimate question. I wonder if there was some hurt that Peter had experienced that prompted that question as well. Maybe one of the disciples have wronged it. We don't know. But out of the conversation that is happening in chapter 18, Peter's got this burning question, and I think it's an awesome question. How many times am I to offer forgiveness to a person who continually hurts me and does wrong against me? So Peter goes ahead and answers the question, just as we would expect Peter to do. So Peter goes ahead and answers the question before Jesus gets to answer. And here's what Peter says, as many as seven times. Oh, wow, Peter, you're, you're just such a graceful guy, full of mercy and love. Let me tell you where that seven comes from. Peter had been taught as a Jewish man that you were responsible to give somebody, forgive someone three times. So if if this person wrongs you, one time you forgive them, two times you forgive them, three times you forgive them. But when they do the wrong thing against you the fourth time, oh man, revenge. You can retaliate. And you can retaliate and not be wrong with God. The Jewish law and the way they interpret it said, yeah, just go ahead. After, after on that fourth time, you are justified in your actions. So here's what Peter does. Peter wants to be seen as the leader among the disciples. Remember, they're still clamoring for power and control. So what is Peter said, I would imagine the other disciples are hearing this discourse. So Peter says, well, what if I just go ahead and do it seven times? I mean, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? I'll, I'll take the three times that I've been taught as a Jewish man, I'll double that, make it six, and then I'll add one to it because seven is like God's number. So just look at me, guys, how well, awesomely gracious that I am. He's expecting, he's expecting Jesus to say, wow, Peter, really? Seven times you'll go that far? So, so on the eighth time is when you're going to retaliate. That's what Peter's expecting. Look at what Jesus says in verse 22. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So Jesus increases it, you know, tremendously. Is Jesus saying that we're going to keep a, a ledger here 
And, and so let's, let's take this in the confines of your marriage, okay? So he has wronged me now 76 times. He's got one more. I've got a little chalkboard over here. I've got all the little lines. He needs to know we're on the 77th one here, and on that 78th one, oh, the hammer is going to fall. That is not what Jesus is saying. Some, some English translation seems to say 70 times 7, as if we're doing multiplication. So would it be 490 times? No. Here's what Jesus is saying, and this is what he's going to teach in the parable. That if you've been forgiven much, far more than 77 or even 490 things, then we're to forgive much. Look at what Jesus says with this parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, there it is, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. So here's the, here's the story. Now remember, parables are stories that Jesus would use to cast alongside a great spiritual truth. And these parables were very powerful, and I'm convinced that in the early church, when the disciples were reaching people, they used the parables as one of the primary teaching tools in the book of Acts. But nonetheless, Jesus says that the kingdom is like this. So in other words, this kingdom of God, this kingdom that Christ is the king over, them being part of that kingdom, we live differently than the rest of the world. We, we don't do things the way the world does them. And hence, these parables teach us that a great contrast between God's kingdom and the kingdom of of the world. So Jesus says, okay, there was a king. And this king had been loaning money to his servants. Nothing unusual. But there comes a day where the king says, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to reconcile my books. I'm going I'm to bring all the people together who owe me money. And, and I'm going to work through these debts. And, and everybody's going to pay their debts. And we're going to close the books out. I'm going to take a little liberty here, but let's just imagine in our mind's eye that this is certainly what the disciples would have been thinking. Here's a king, he's sitting in his throne room, and, and all the people who owe him money are lined up. And one by one, they're standing before the king, and they're saying to the king, this is how much I borrow. The king checks his books, says, yeah, you borrowed this much, how are you going to pay? Some of them have the money right then. They pay the king off, walk away free, no debt. And the king writes into the ledger, zero, they've paid me back, zero, they don't owe any more money. For some of them, when they get in front of the king, maybe they only have half the money to pay. So the king's got to either take some of their goods or throw them into prison. He's got all kinds of options at his disposal. And by the way, the king has the right to do that because he's owed the money. There's one servant back there, and his knees are knocking together. He's extremely nervous. And the reason he's extremely nervous is he owes 10 thousand talents. Let's put that in today's context. 10,000 talents is the equivalent in their day of 20 years worth of salary. Good salary too. So let's just say for our context today, let's just say a million dollars because it's a huge amount of money. 10, I wonder if this guy owed more money than anybody else combined. 10,000 talents is an insane amount of money in Jesus' day. And this guy has borrowed that much money from the king, and he's standing in line, getting ready to have to stand before this king, knowing that there is no way under the sun that he's going to be able to pay. Verse 25, and he could not pay. That's no surprise. So up until this point in the parable, there's really no surprises here. The, the, the disciples hearing this parable would have simply understood this context completely. 
So the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, so that payment could be made. So the king says, okay, we're going to sell off everything you got. We're even going to sell you and your family off, and I'm going to recoup as much as I can. But the reality is, this guy owes more than after everything's sold, there's no way he's going to be able to pay this off. So the king's just trying to make up some difference here. This is well within the king's responsibility to do. No surprises. The next part's not going to be a surprise for you either. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. No, you won't. I mean, think about it. 20 years worth of salary? Is the king expected to wait another 20 to 30 to 40 years if the guy will even live that long to be able to pay off this million dollars back to the king? There is no way, even if the king has patience, there is no way this servant is going to be able to pay this back. And that servant knows it and that king knows it. But again, no surprises that this guy would fall on his face before the king and beg for mercy, although none is deserved and none is expected. Are you ready for the twist in the story? Verse 27, every parable has a twist, sometimes two of them. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Yeah, we're reading that correct. Did did you get that? Now, listen, nobody in the room was expecting this. Nobody. Especially the guy on his face. So the king says, in response to his crying and and the situation that this guy's in, the the king reaches over into the ledger where it says a million dollars or 20 years worth of, of salary, and he takes his pen or his pencil or whatever he's got, and he scratches it out and writes in a zero balance for a guy that just owed more than he could possibly pay. I would imagine that the servant is shocked. The guy stands up. He walks out of the king's presence that day with no debt, with his family still around him, with his house and everything intact. And it was simply because of the grace of the king that did that. It wasn't because he was a good man. It wasn't because he was going to be able to pay it back. It wasn't because that he somehow had influence. In that moment, he had nothing. (coughs) Nothing to offer. And out of the good grace of the king, the king writes a big zero. I can imagine when this guy walks out of of the... of the mansion of the king, he takes in a breath of air, he's got a smile on his face, and he cannot believe what just happened. He has just been forgiven far more than he ever deserved. But then, this same servant sees one of his servants, somebody that he's loaned money to. I don't think, you know, the parable doesn't give us an indication here, they never do, because it's not, not important, but I have to wonder when the guy walks out of the king's presence, a free man, I don't think there was a lot of time that passed. Doesn't seem to be in the parable. And he sees a guy that owes him money. Notice in the parable. He says here, verse 28, you see that word but? There's a shift in the story. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. About a day's wage. 100 bucks, 150 bucks, maybe. So this guy owes him about $150. 
Now, what's expected in the parable right now? I mean, we can all agree. What's expected here? Well, what's expected is, is that for a guy that owes him such a little amount, I mean, minuscule compared to what he just got forgiven, right? The, the obvious intentions of this man would be, hey, no big deal, dude. I just, I just had a million dollars lifted off my back. I, I've just been forgiven an incredible debt, so certainly 150 bucks is not going to be a big deal. Notice what happens. He began to choke him, the servant who owes him a hundred denarii, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Does this sound familiar? Well, it does to all of us because we just read it in the story. But what's interesting to me is, is the guy who was just forgiven a million dollars seems to have forgotten pretty quickly what he had just been forgiven. Otherwise, he wouldn't be acting like this, right? I mean, the exact same story, the exact same scenario. This servant who owes him 150 bucks, it's now on his face before this guy begging for mercy, begging for forgiveness. And wouldn't you think in that moment, you go, oh yeah, the king. Yeah, that guy, he was a pretty good guy in a very similar situation. So I'm just going to do what's been done to me. I'm going I'm to forgive you. But no, he chokes him. He refused verse 30, it says, it put him into prison until he should pay the debt. Hmm. That's rather shocking, is it not? It's almost as though this guy's completely forgotten what he's been forgiven. It's almost as though this guy is not acting in any way like how the king treated him. But yet, in every one of our minds, we have this expectation that he should do that. He should, he should offer forgiveness to this guy. Every one of us have that expectation right now, but yet he's not fulfilling that. Why is that? It's because he's so quickly forgotten where he's been brought from. He's been, he's been given an incredible debt, forgiven it. And, and now, as a free man, he's forgotten he's free. As a man who's been forgiven much, he's forgotten how much he's been forgiven Get this, there's always people around watching. Look at this, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, there are always people watching. People that you work with, you know, they they know that there's something a little different about you, right? I mean, and maybe tomorrow you'll talk about the church service you went to or, you know, Operation Christmas Child. Maybe you're filling up some shoeboxes and involved in that and people are wondering, you know, what's that all about? But they they know, they know you're, 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 in their minds, they call you religious, right? I'm not a big fan of that term, but they call you religious. And they know enough about you that they, they watch you, maybe out of the corner of their eye, but they, they know that because you claim something about Jesus and you claim about something about knowing God and you carry your Bible and you pray during lunch, they, they see these things about you. So there's expectations about how you are to live out, whether they understand everything about Christianity or not. There's expectations that you don't even know about sometimes placed upon your life because you name the name of Jesus in your life. And there are always people watching. And in this parable, there's a group of other servants who are watching this go down. And guess who's shocked by what they see? They see a guy who was just given, forgiven a million dollars, treating this other guy harshly over a minuscule amount of money. And guess where they go? They go right back to the king. And listen to the master. The master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should you not, look at this, should you not have had mercy on that fellow servant as I have mercy on you? That's exactly what we're all thinking, right? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. You know what happened? The master says, you know what? I'm going to go back in the ledger here, and I'm going to write a million dollars back in here. Because you took the forgiveness that I gave you, and you withheld it from someone else. I did this out of my grace and my mercy for you because you pleaded with me. And when somebody, owing you far less, pleaded the same way, you denied them. So get this, if you deny them, I'm going to deny you. That sounds exactly what Jesus said at the end of the model prayer. He says that if we don't offer forgiveness to others after we've experienced a vast amount of forgiveness, get this, God says, okay, if you won't dispense grace after you've received grace, then okay, then okay, I'm going to leave you to yourself. I'm going to let you suffer. That relationship between you and I is going to suffer because that sin is going to build up in your life because you're holding this grudge over someone else. You think that by holding that grudge, by holding it over someone else's head and not offering forgiveness, you think you're impacting their life when in fact you're destroying your own. The king and the servant reconciled. That word reconciled means to be brought together. Get this. Those of you who reconcile your checkbooks, I know not a lot of that going on anymore. We're all dependent upon electronics now. But reconciling your checkbook, your, your income, the money you've got in the bank matches what you're expending, and it's balanced, right? In the respect of the king, the king writes a zero into the ledger and says, you no longer owe me money. Our debt is now closed out. There's nothing between you and I. You and I have been brought together. Reconciliation means two parties brought together. This master has now revoked that reconciliation. He says, no, the debt's still there. We often talk about this word reconciliation in respect to the gospel and, and that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, brings us, reconciles us to the Father. In other words, it, it brings us back into a right relationship with the Father. The sin, the evil, the things that we've done, is forgiven, mercy is extended, grace is, is, is given. We, we are indebted far beyond $2 million, far beyond $10 billion. We are indebted and separated from God. And, and then when we come to faith in Jesus, we are brought into a right relationship with God while by which God forgives us of our sins. Have you ever walked to your refrigerator and you got, you got that nice leafy salad, you know, you're going to pour some salad dressing on it. You go in there and you get that, maybe the vinaigrette or, or something that's got the olive oil in it and the spices, and what are you going to do when you get that out of the refrigerator? You're going to shake that up, right? Because if you don't, you're going to have a whole bunch of spice or a whole bunch of oil, but not a whole lot of flavor. It's because oil and water don't mix. Oil and vinegar doesn't mix. They're, they're two separate things, and no matter how much you work to make those things come become one, they, they can't happen. You can shake the bottle for a little bit. There's a kind of an intermingling, and you can pour it on your salad. You put that back in the refrigerator, and the next day, oil and water, oil and vinegar all separated out. You can't reconcile the two. But, but you also have this other substance in your refrigerator. I, I don't touch this stuff. Some people say it's good. I, I won't touch it, but... There's another substance in your refrigerator that's, that's oil and water, and you've never had to shake it up. It's called mayonnaise. Any y'all eat that stuff? Ugh. 
Can't stand mayonnaise. But you've never had to get that mayonnaise out and shake it up, have you? Not a single time. Every time you pop the lid on that nasty mess, it's all together in one big white clump, right? And you smear that stuff all over your bread, Lord help you. But you've never had to shake it up. There's a reason for that. Inside that mayonnaise and that oil and water, there's something else that's in there. It's, it's called eggs. You know what eggs do? Eggs bring oil and water and make them one. There, there's a third party there that brings two parties that are completely separate and brings them together. Guess what Jesus did? When we, when we observe the cup and the bread, Jesus did something. When he laid down his life, and he suffered the way that he did. He brought together two things that can never be brought together. Your sin had separated you from God, and God being holy and perfect could never be in a relationship with a sinful human being. Yet Jesus steps in, he takes the full wrath of God upon himself in his body and shedding his blood, and what he does is he brings two people who are at war with one another together. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are reconciled, made right with God. And here's what God does. God goes into his ledger, and where I had all this sin in my life, all this disobedience, all of this brokenness that I had choose to participate in, God reaches in there and he writes a big old fat zero in there, and he says to me, it's as though I have never sinned, not even a single time. And then God says, as you walk with my son, I'm going to make you like my son, and as you walk with him, you're going to get some things wrong. But get this, my grace is sufficient for whatever sin you commit, so you come back to me, you own it, don't give me no fake apologies, you own it, and I will wipe it clean, and I will continually put a zero in your ledger, because you are no longer an alien, you are a son and a daughter of the Most High, and and only Jesus could bring that about. Amen. Man, a lot of the gospel's good stuff, people. The gospel is a beautiful, beautiful reconciliation between two parties that could never mix. And it was all because of love. God's love for us. His pursuit of us. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. It talks about the love of God. And as we sing this, I want you to reflect. I want you to reflect on just how much God has forgiven you of. Listen, the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice, the death that he died, the, the pain that was inflicted upon him, the blood that he shed, listen, that, that was for a massive debt. A massive debt that you couldn't pay. And God did that out of his love pursuing you. So as we... As we worship this morning, as we sing this song together, I want us to reflect on just how much God has forgiven you and just how much God has extended grace and mercy to you. Father, we ask and we pray that as we think about forgiveness and we think about your goodness, And we would look back as your followers and we would see just how far you've brought us from. Because, Father, I am convinced by what Jesus is teaching us here, the reason we're not forgiving others is because we've forgotten the pit that we were brought out of. So, Father, as we worship together and, and sing together and we think about your love, remind us of just how far you've brought us. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Take a look at verse 35 as Jesus sums up this parable. 
Verse 35, Jesus says this. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is he talking about? Well, at the end of the parable, the the one who didn't offer forgiveness for the small debt that was owed came back but was brought back before the king and the king said to him, look, I'm gonna hold you responsible for that debt that I, I forgave you earlier. You're now responsible. He ends up in prison. So what Jesus says is that both at the end of the model prayer and here, that if we harbor unforgiveness as disciples of Jesus towards those who've wronged us and those we have wronged, if we have not worked to reconcile that and fix that, then we are denying the very grace that we've received. We, we put ourselves in a position that we are not giving out the grace that we received, that, that the grace we've received has been meant to be spread around. G, uh, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You don't have to turn over there, but it's a powerful chapter. And Paul's talking about how that we have been reconciled to the Father through what Jesus did on our behalf. He uses the word there as, he uses the word ambassador there. That if we're a new creation, he uses that term, then we are ambassadors. We are to go into the world in great commission work, make disciples who make disciples, teaching them to obey, baptizing them in a Trinitarian God. That's the call of the church, but the church will never do what the church has called us to do if the individual members of that church withhold grace that we've been forgiven, that we've been receiving, that we've received from God by having our ledgers wiped clean. And then Paul says this. He says, you've been reconciled and now you've been given a ministry, get this, of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. Because your lives are being watched as disciples of Jesus. If there's a, to be a people in Robinson County who are forgiving and loving and experiencing and giving out grace, it's the ones who name the name of Jesus. So what is Jesus teaching us here in his last verse in relation to that parable? First of all, you've been forgiven far more than you realize. I think the problem is, is that when we begin to hold grudges and, and we begin to not give forgiveness and grace out, I think that is a sure sign that we've forgotten all that we've been forgiven. Isn't that the point of the parable? That in short order, the guy who's been forgiven a million dollars quickly forgot it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have acted like that towards the other servant. You see, if you're having problems with forgiveness, you're also having problems remembering where Jesus brought you from. Our debt was great. How do we know that? Well, look at what our king submitted himself to. From the earliest moments in the Garden of Gethsemane, all the way till he's on that cross, and he says, Tetelestai, finished. Everything in between, pain, horrific pain, horrific abuse. The religious rulers, the Jewish rulers, take, have Jesus before Pilate, the Roman leader in that province, and they need him to sign off on this crucifixion. You see, it's not that they wanted Jesus dead. Certainly they wanted him dead, but they wanted Jesus dead publicly. They wanted him shamed. They wanted him embarrassed so that anyone would ever think about following Jesus would think twice because here is the naked body of Jesus hanging on a cross, bleeding to death while being mocked with a sign over his head that says King of the Jews. They did that intentionally so that no one would ever want to follow that guy. 
dying between two thieves? You see, when we look at the cross and we look at the bloodshed, when we look at all that he endured, we have to ask the question, why would he do that? Why would he go through such pain and agony? Why is it in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter pulls his sword to defend Jesus against Malchus and cuts the guy's ear off that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put your sword up. Do you not know that I've got legions of angels that I could call down right now? Why didn't he? I'll tell you why. It's because of the debt you owed, the debt that I owed. So you ever want to wonder about how much you've been forgiven, just cast your eyes upon a bloody cross. Cast your eyes upon the crowds that are crying, crucify, give us Barabbas, a known murderer, and crucify this guy who's a threat. You don't have to, have to look any further than the cross, the bloody cross, to understand just how much God did to reconcile you back to himself. Another question here kind of begs a question, doesn't it? If you've never been reconciled to God, what in the world? I mean, all that we've been talking about this morning has been more directed at disciples than it has those of you who've not chosen to follow yet. What in the world would you be waiting on? Why, why in the world would you not want that, that sin and that, that debt and that guilt and that shame? Why in the world would you not want to receive the gift that, that God has given and proved that he given by hanging his son on a cross? What in the world would you be waiting on? What, what in the world could you be holding on to that's better than that? You see, you've forgotten where God brought you from. And then the second thing I think Jesus is teaching his disciples that those who are unable to forgive are unable to be forgiven. We see in the parable, we see in what Jesus is teaching with the model prayer. The king reinstated the, get, the debt. Forgiveness was withheld from the servant. The grace needed to forgive, the, gra the grace that you need to forgive someone who's wronged you. Uh, I began talking about just how painful some of the things that you've went through. How in the world are we going to get to a place of forgiveness? Well, it's only through the grace of God that God has extended to you that we can then go out and forgive someone of a deed done to us. Grace given, a ministry of reconciliation, and forgiveness extended. You don't have it within your flesh. You don't have it within that old broken part of you that still kind of remains. You, you don't have it there. What you'll find there is bitterness, anger, hatred. That's where this all leads, by the way. A lack of unforgiveness, a, a, lack, of, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of making things right. And right, I'll tell you where this leads. It leads to anger. It leads to bitterness. It leads to hatred. It leads to isolation. It leads to deeper and deeper and deeper hurt and deeper pain. That's where it leads. And then finally, could it be that the same fake apologies that we're offering to each other is the same ones we're offering to God? Could it be that we carry those same excuses into our prayer time with God and we offer the same non-apologies to God that we're offering to one another? Could it be that we're never really taking ownership of what we've got wrong? We, we've never been honest with God and the fact that we've wronged Him? And could it be that the same lies we're telling ourselves about the hurt somebody else's caused is the same lies we're trying to tell God, but there's one big difference. God sees your heart. He knows the very thoughts of your mind. He knows exactly what you're doing. And what you're actually doing is making excuses. Could we be offering God a faux apology? 
I think so. That vertical relationship with God, broken, which then breaks all of our relationships with each other. And then we get into the snowball effect where we're hurting more people, like we're not giving forgiveness, we're not seeking forgiveness and reconciliation, and then of course we're not seeking reconciliation with God, we're not seeking to make things right with Him, so we're making excuses with people, we're making excuses with God, and let me tell you where all that leads. Well, lack of joy, lack of peace, and ongoing hurt and pain in your life. Are, are you tired of running that, that wheel? Are you tired of running on that wheel that leads to nowhere? Well, maybe we remember where God's brought us from. We begin to move in the direction of offering an apology, a real apology, where we take ownership with people we've wronged, and we set free those who've wronged us. We no longer hold a grudge. And then we walk with our Creator the way we were intended to. Father in heaven, as we close today, may we take an inventory of our heart, May we look inward, not looking at anyone else. And Lord, in that place is great pain. And Father, in that place is hurts that we've inflicted on others that we've never really taken responsibility for. And Father, as your followers, as disciples, Father, I pray that you put your hand right on those issues in our heart, that we would not excuse them away with you or with the other person, that we would own them. And that the grace we've received would be the grace we extend. Father, for the one that is far from you this morning, for the one that is lost and undone, spiritually dead, we pray, Father, especially for them, that they would experience your grace this morning fresh and anew. That the burden they're carrying can be set free today once and for all. You love us that much. Thank you, Father, for this time. And may you be honored and blessed in these closing moments by the response of people's hearts to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.